Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. When meeting an expat friend on my first trip to Dubai, the host at the restaurant where we were meeting quickly ushered me up to the second floor. For foreigners, he said before handing me a wine list. Dubai's tolerance of alcohol is a more formalized version of Muslim acceptance and clandestine drinking of alcohol that dates back to the religion's very inception, despite commands to the contrary. Professor Rudy Maté tells that story in Angels Tapping at the Wine Shop's Door, a history of alcohol in the Islamic world from Oxford University Press and Hearst. Rudy Maté is the John A. Monroe and Dorothy L. Monroe Chair of History at the University of Delaware, he is the author of four prize-winning monographs on Iranian history and the editor or co-editor of another six books. He is currently president of the Persian Heritage Foundation. Today, Rudy and I chat about alcohol in the Islamic world, who drank it, how drinkers excuse their behavior, and how non-Muslims ended up being a part of the Muslim drinking world. So, Rudy, thanks for coming on the show today. Um, you know, it's probably best when talking about uh, the role alcohol played in the Islamic world to start with the official view of alcohol. And I know that's that's maybe a misnomer because I think the whole point of your book is that the official view of alcohol is somewhat um, contested already. Uh, but But I guess according to, I guess, Islamic religious scripture, what is the quote-unquote official view of alcohol and alcohol consumption? Well, first of all, Nicholas, thank you for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, so that question uh, is a complicated one. We, we need to differentiate. Um, it's filled with ambiguity and paradox, and it begins with the Quran itself, which, of course, Muslims consider to be the literal speech of God uh, because it's ambiguous, uh, because the Quran has various pronouncements on alcohol. At one point, it praises wine, as a divine gift, and it only explicitly proscribes red wine, khamr in Arabic, probably because the Prophet had a problem with his companions indulging, as both Islamic scholars and Western um, ones have uh, surmised. Now, the, the hadith, which is the presumed sayings of the Prophet and his companions, which of course follows the Quran after the death of the Prophet, uh, tends to be more negative uh, and tends to ban any type of alcohol uh, as clouding the mind, which is really the point in a way. You know, alcohol clouds the mind and it prevents the believer uh, from uh, uh, paying proper attention to religion. You know, you can't pray with a um, uh, an intoxicated mind. Uh, but then again, there are exceptions. You know, there, there's from very from the very beginning really been a discussion, a never-ending discussion, is trying to seek loopholes and trying to find ways to sort of bring in alcohol in spite of the official ban on red wine. And, and that very point became 
uh, a major loophole because if red wine is if only red wine is prescribed, then what does that mean for other forms of alcohol? There are diff, somewhat different interpretations. There are different schools in Islam, different sort of intellectual currents. And for example, the Hanafi school, which is prevalent in the Turkic world, tends to be slightly more tolerant and open to forms of alcohol that, for example, did not exist at the time of the Prophet. So that's kind of the short answer to that question. It's, of course, a huge topic in and of itself, but let me leave it at that. Well, I mean, let's get into into some of these different schools of thought. I mean, there was one, um, I I forget the name, but the one that said, uh, was it only only God can judge? Um, So which kind of led to a slightly more... um, liberal earthly lifestyle that's true that is not one of the four canonical schools you know um uh, because they're uh, the hanbalis and hanafis and the shafis and the malikis but there were other you know philosophical currents in an early islamic times so, and and the ones you're referring to is probably that of the muatazilites who were kind of free thinkers inheriting the greek approach to life uh, and they argued that uh, you know the, as long as one doesn't get drunk you know it's 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 um, a, a, a rationality decrees that there's nothing wrong with it so there was a certain latitudinarianism about this on the part of these early uh, intellectual currents definitely um so as the I mean, as the arab empires expand um especially into north africa and then and then into into spain and kind of expanding all throughout the region. How do they kind of deal with new subjects who, um, well, I guess were not Muslim and were more accepting of alcohol? How did they um, regulate or manage their alcohol consumption? It's an excellent question. Um, The short answer is they mostly left them alone. And that's in part because, you know, we tend to have, and, and Muslims tend to have this idea that Islam sort of fell from the sky, conquered the entire uh, realm that it, where it later became the majority religion and sort of erased previous traditions. And all that's a fallacy, of course. Nothing farther from the truth. It took hundreds of years uh, and in many cases much longer for the majority of the population to convert from previous faith to Islam. And even in places like Egypt, really centrally located, Ottoman Empire, you know, until the early 20th century until its fall, really, almost half of the population was non-Muslim. So that's first of all. The second one is that, you know, most people were illiterate. They didn't have access to the texts, uh, the canonical texts, including the Quran. So all that militated against this idea of imposing uh, the new law. And then ultimately, you know, alcohol was gradually relegated to the so-called people of the book, acknowledged by Islam as kind of subordinate uh, clients, uh, non-Muslims, those who had, uh, you know, like Muslims themselves, a written book, so to speak, you know, the Bible, the Torah. So those were the Jews and the Armenians and the Greeks. In the case of Iran, the Zoroastrians, who also have their own books, there were just too many of them to uh, to convert by force. Uh, so they ended up, by and large, the purveyors uh, of alcohol, you know, allowed to make their own and use it within their own communities. But of course, they ended also uh, being the ones who tended to sell it to Muslims, which put them in a precarious position because it was mostly live and let live and, you know, turn the other way and look the, look the other way. But they were also potential scapegoats. If there was a crisis, 
you know, a plague or pestilence or, you know, hailstorms or, you know, famine or something like that. Typically, those minorities bore the brunt of the wrath of the, uh, you know, the clerical forces. So how did people try to justify their alcohol consumption if, if they tried to justify it or excuse it at all? Um, you know, one, one thing that stuck out to me was this was this huge debate about medicinal alcohol and a lot of um, rulers being like, well, if it's for medicine, it's okay, which, you know, bringing my my contemporary 20th century disabilities into it feels a lot like the debate about medicinal pot. <laughs> it's like, um, it's like, oh, this is for medicine. It's not, it's totally okay. Um, but, but how do people try to justify or excuse their, their, their alcohol drinking during this time? Well, just on, on the point you just made, also reminds me one very much of a medicinal alcohol in the American prohibition period, of course, it's the same thing. So the answer is in, in myriad ways um, for, for those who did drink, because of course one should always start with the, the the fact, historical fact that most Muslims never drank and never drink, especially not the middle middling classes. You know, tend to be more pious. Uh, so drinking tended to be a matter of the elite, the royal courts, and and their entourage on the one hand, and sort of the kind of kind of the down and out, right? But so those who who drank uh, tended to find all kinds of ways to justify it. You know, beginning of course with this injunction in the Quran that only khamr, red wine, is prescribed, which then by implication means that every other form is perhaps okay. Uh, and so there were people who argued from the very beginning, yes, date wine. Uh, Nabith in Arabic is okay, all used in moderation because that's always the criterion, you know, never to excess. Uh, date one, which of course around the time of the Prophet, even Hadith, you know, these sayings of the Prophet that people people around the Prophet tried had uh, Nabith, date wine. Uh, later um, concoctions such as the Raki, which became very popular in the late Ottoman Empire and in modern Turkey. Champagne, which of course wasn't around at all really until the 18th century, uh, those were seen as you know permissible uh, because again they are not explicitly meant in the text, and and then there were all these other loopholes. You already mentioned one, you know the the pre-Islamic tradition, the Greek tradition, because it goes back to that. The medicinal execute uh, 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 excuse. My doctor prescribed it for me. I'm ill, so it's legitimate for me. There are countless examples in past and present about that. And then finally, there's a continuation of other traditions, pre-existing traditions, the Persian and the Turkic one, most importantly. You know, in the first one, drinking was typically the prerogative of the king, of the Shah, and his entourage, the king and his boon companions. And in the second, in the Turkic tradition, drinking was a matter of tribal fighting and feasting, hard fighting and hard feasting of warriors on horseback. So all these were uh, transferred and continued into Islamic times and were in part fully adopted and even textually integrated into the Islamic corpus, which was simply not sim- not just religious in nature, but, but you know, extended to a whole range of uh, poetry, literature in general, advice literature and so forth, belles lettres, uh, and, all, and all of those, wine especially, and it, and it is really wine until modern times, uh, that gets the focus, uh, is is praised, is is treated as, uh, you know, a, sort of an emblem of sophisticated life. Uh, there is even an advice literature that uh, is clearly meant to acculturate the rustic Turks coming from Central Asia into polite behavior. Uh, 
you know, how to drink and how to deal with your slaves and with your concubines and so forth, and how to serve your wine, uh, things of that nature. So it becomes fully integrated into the Islamic corpus beyond the strictly religious one. And then um, uh, there's another one, you know, uh, there's the, in general, the idea that drinking is a privilege of youth, which youth, after all, is for merriment and pleasure. Uh, old age, when it comes, is for repentance, for sin. So that right there, it gives you kind of an excuse. You know, you drink because you're young and irresponsible. The point is, when you reach 40 or 50, it's time to repent. And sin in Islam helps uh, because it's not innate, as in Christianity, but it can be reversed. Simply, as sin is simply you're turning your back to God. You can always come back to God. So there is always forgiveness for repentance in good faith before the end of your life. You know, it's like Catholicism, you know, you confess and then your things are absolved. And so um, all these things were uh, actively pursued and were used as means and ways to absolve oneself from the terrible sin of drinking in Islam. So in other words, you could be a Muslim, you could drink and still be a Muslim, Muslim in your own mind and, and in the mind of many people. Uh, 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 you know, literati and 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 bureaucrats, uh, and even religious figures who who played with all these different loopholes. So let's talk about kind of the the I, I guess the the regulatory approach to to alcohol um, among many of these Muslim rulers. You know, it, you know that there's kind of like a pattern where you have a particularly boozy ruler who is maybe a bit more tolerant. Um, then their heir comes up in an in an effort to. Uh, show the difference between um, between between him and his boozy father is much more strict on alcohol, and then the cycle just repeats. Um, but but kind of how did the regulatory aspect um, on alcohol consumption? How did that like change from from kind of ruler to ruler? Um, yeah, there is no direct pattern, but there are certain tendencies, and this is one of them. You know, it's kind of a seesaw relationship. The uh, alcoholic father uh, turns out not to be such a great role model for the son. So sometimes you see uh, a hard drinking father followed by an abstemious son, right? But of course, it's much more complex than that because typically a ruler comes to power. He is a Muslim ruler. He has to set the standard and the example, and he has to gain credibility and legitimacy from a religious perspective. So typically a ruler comes to power and then issues a ban. But it's kind of, uh, you know, pro forma in a way, and it's incantatory, uh, and it tends to be short-lived. A ruler issues a ban in, you know, in anticipation of a battle, uh, you know, a campaign, where you, of course, have to sort of invoke God's graces. Um, and so a ru ruler invokes a ban when uh, plague and famine strike, because he has to sort of mollify the divine, if you will. Uh, so those are some uh, major points, major moments when bans typically get uh, issued, but they almost invariably uh, dissolve, peter out, fade out under the influence of all kinds of factors. You know, first of all, you know, the, the, the overarching one is, of course, that alcohol has proven to be the ultimate juggernaut in human history. No civilization has been able to resist it. Right. And the second one is uh, often overlooked, but I do bring out in my book in, in many uh, cases and instances that it brought in lots of fiscal revenue. So there was always this dilemma. You know, the, 
the religious injunction to ban it, the other one, the profitability and the need for the uh, for the revenue. Uh, so again, this idea of banning and letting loose is a very complex one, uh, of which this sort of alternation between the strict father and the loose son and vice versa is only one. So you really have to look from period to period and bring in all these other factors in order to sort of um, uh, gather an over an overall image. So I mean your your book your book covers um, covers a really wide area from from um, North Africa all the way through to um, to India, although you don't you don't go further further east than that. Um, as you get kind of further away, from uh from the home of 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 the islamic faith you know whether it's westward towards north africa or eastward towards india do do attitudes towards alcohol change do they become more tolerant do they um but i guess how as you move out towards the periphery um does that change the relationship to, to alcohol i would say there's no good and unambiguous answer to it you know there is not the def- uh, the phenomenon that you sometimes see, the farther away from the center, the more hardline, the more orthodox, in order to prove one's legitimacy, right, holier than the pope, than the pope, that doesn't necessarily apply here. For example, Saudi Arabia, the heartland of Islam, was until recently and in some ways still today the strictest of all countries in terms of banning alcohol, um, and so uh, it's it's a little more complex than that. I, I would say that the level of uh, official uh, adherence to Islamist doctrine in modern times is the most important uh, yardstick. Uh, but even that is uh, deceptive. You know, Iran, for example, is a very strict country since the revolution of 1978-79, yet nowhere uh, is alcohol as prevalent among the populace, in part as escape and defiance to the terrible regime they live under. So, you know, and Iranians are notorious party animals uh, or famous party animals. So, you know, in Iran, it's it is a wash in alcohol. It's all clandestine, of course. Um, so you also have to differentiate then between governments, authorities, uh, on the one hand, and the populace uh, on the other. But I I wouldn't be able to give you you know a one fit um, uh, a one answer fits all type of um, response to this question. Um. I want to shift now to kind of ask about how people outside the Islamic world saw, um, well, saw and maybe later on uh, drove the world of Islamic alcohol. Um, but let's start with the, with kind of pre pre empire, the pre imperial age, um, when Europeans were um, were in these royal courts, were taking part in these parties. How did Europeans of this time understand uh, drinking in the Islamic world. Okay, yeah, Europeans, of course, uh, have been visiting the Islamic world um, since the late Middle Ages, one could say, you know, in the form of missionaries and simply travelers, merchants, later on diplomats and so forth. Well, the first observation and, and most valid information uh, uh, information, observation is, as I already pointed out, that most Muslims don't, did not, and still don't drink uh, today. Um, They also observed that drinking took mostly place in a so-called minority environment, you know, these religious minorities, Jews and Christians for the most part, uh, 
And very importantly, they all stress uh, excess, that Muslims drink not to savor or to enjoy necessarily, but to get drunk as fast as possible. Now, that sounds like an Orientalist stereotype, and in a way it is, uh, but it is also true, I think. Uh, Even Muslims acknowledge that themselves. And it has to do, of course, with the fact that drinking was never socially integrated. It never had this sort of French uh, enlivening uh, dinner party among friends type of quality. It was a forbidden fruit, which almost automatically leads to excess. And there was also this notion that one drop equals a whole vat, which is another uh, sort of not necessarily a justification, but certainly, uh, you know, rationalization on the part of Muslims like, you know, if I drink one drop, I've sinned. I might as well go all the way, right? Yeah. Drink a whole drop. <laughs> and because the sin has been committed regardless. Uh, so that also led to enormous uh, uh, level of drunkenness. And, and that is really the prevalent uh, uh, perception. And, and again, it sounds like a, a stereotype, and it is, uh, but it also corresponds to the truth, I think, until today in some ways. Um. And then we move into the age of empire, um, or the age of European empire, I should clarify. Um, and that plays a rather significant role in um, in bringing alcohol to a lot of these a lot of these societies. How, how does it, how does colonial or how does colonialism and imperialism then play a role in 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 the alcohol trade? Okay, well, different ways. First of all. European, the European presence and intrusion, because it's mostly European, of course, in the, uh, say, 18th, 19th century. Uh, First of all, uh, it brings new types of alcohol to the Islamic world, hitherto unknown ones, you know, cognac, uh, champagne, which Muslims love, you know, the popping of the courts and the effervescence of bubbly and all that, you know, has a magical quality, which is still, which does around the world, of course. Uh, you know, and, and, and there was also the justification, oh, this is not alcohol, it's just lemonade, right? Uh, so in the Ottoman Empire, especially uh, ruled by the Hanafi interpretation, as I pointed out, the most, you know, uh, capacious one and the most tolerant one, uh, champagne was long seen as not really alcoholic. Um, so uh, that's one, you know, different types of drinks, new ones. Uh, and then also the type of, you know, drinking can, Customs and habits change. You know, booze becomes uh, introduced at official receptions, uh, attended for the first time in the 19th century by, say, the Ottoman sultans, gingerly and hesitantly, but more and more so, and certainly by high officials. Uh, and during outings, you know, Bosporus, boat rides on the Bosporus, in the case of uh, the elite of Istanbul, uh, things of that nature. And ultimately, you know, new venues, uh, rather than either the confines of the palace where the court, the sultan and the shah would drink, typically um, in in insulation and isolation from the populace, in other words, invisible, uh, with the Iranians being the exception, the Iranians and the Mughals in India, because they were the direct inheritors of this Central Asian sort of warrior before and after battle drinking in public, right, without any compunction. Uh, so either that within the palace or um, in, um, uh, in, in, in new venues, meaning, you know, in the course of the 19th century, restaurants, European-style restaurants are introduced, cabarets, uh, cafes, ultimately lounges, 
uh, big hotels, of course, in the uh, beginning of the 1880s, in places like Istanbul and Cairo and so forth. Uh, so all that uh, uh, bespeaks great uh, a great amount of change. Um, and, you know, the Europeanized elites in the Ottoman Empire, North Africa, and later also in Iran, which is a little bit behind because it's much farther away uh, infrastructurally from Europe, they begin to take to alcohol f- uh, following the intrusion of Europeans militarily. You know, Napoleon in Egypt, late uh, 18th century, the French in Algeria, 1830, foreign soldiers being stationed in Istanbul during the Crimean War of the 1850s. They bring alcohol. Uh, and provide a shock to the local populace, but also fascination uh, and and uh, imitation uh, to some extent. And then, of course, ultimately, European alcoholic industry seeks a foothold uh, in the Islamic world, as it does around the world. But you have to be a little careful there, I think. I, I spelled it out in my, book, in my book. You know, the term alco-imperialism has been introduced, but I don't think it applies... Uh, or, or, or uh, as much, and if it applies, one one has to approach it with some caution, I think, because it's very different, say, sub-Saharan Africa. Because you know, Europeans were they knew better than simply to impose alcohol on Muslims, knowing how sensitive uh, the issue was. So there's no direct imposition, and you know, it's very clear that the Muslims themselves were the most eager uh, to adopt uh, and adapt. Uh, but you know, you look at the French example. It's perhaps the most, uh, uh, the best one, institutionalized approach. It's called, uh, you know, they call it the politique des égards. You know, circumspect in terms of trying to limit alcohol to French quarters, European inhabited areas of the city, restricting it for, to Muslims uh, and so forth. So a great deal of uh, caution and circ- circumspection. There's this, so this idea of imposing alcohol certain, certainly does not. Apply in in the way it does in some other parts of the world. Now um, the other one, and it's also very important, and I'm sometimes overlooked, and I spell it out in my book to some extent, uh, and that is that the association of alcohol with Christian, especially Christian minorities, which is of course very old and goes back to the beginning, in the late 19th century and the early 20th century, turns into an antagonistic association of alcohol with the same minorities as a fifth column. Because And this is especially visible in the Ottoman Empire with Greeks and Armenians who have always been more entrepreneurial than Muslims. You know, they're better attuned to European influence, speak their languages, French and Italian and so forth. And they take advantage of the new business opportunities offered by Europeans coming in, including European firms and the British and their, um, you know, the the privileges uh, and um, uh, the so-called... Um, um, what you call them, the um, 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 the um, oh, what is it called? As of the eighteen thirties, uh, the, the concessions that they get uh, to to establish drinking establishment uh, throughout the cities in the Ottoman Empire. So it's mostly these minorities uh, who take advantage of that. And then you know, there's sort of a new, uh, there's a backlash ultimately in the late 19th, early 20th century on the part of a com- combined traditionalist and modern nationalist, and that ultimately, of course, degenerates into uh, uh, not just harassment, but uh, you know, mass killings and ultimately the Armenian genocide of 1915, which is sim- not simply about alcohol, but it, it plays a role. That you know, a, a suspicion and an allegation, accusation that these uh, are not 
truly Turks or, you know, they're not loyal to the Turkish state uh, and they have to be marginalized and ultimately expelled. So that, that plays an important role as well. So we talked about how, you know, capitulation is of course a term that I was, I was looking for and, and didn't find. Yeah. You know, this set of, of privileges that the Europeans acquired in especially the Ottoman empire and in Egypt. So, you know, I mean, we, we talked about how, just talked about how imperialism, colonialism, um, affected alcohol in, in this part of the world, which then implies that decolonization then has a, has a role to play in this story as well. Um, and we've already kind of hinted at the idea of how alcohol gets associated with certain, with certain groups, with certain minorities. Um, how does the end of European empire then kind of change the approach to alcohol in a lot of these now newly independent countries? Right. Um, well, again, it's a variable picture, <clears throat> depending on region and type of, of rule. First of all, of course, much of the Middle East was never directly colonized. Um, you know, Iran, for example, was only semi-colonized, and even Egypt was a protectorate, but never simply the possession. Algeria would be the best example, of course, with the French as a direct colony, indeed an extension to France, its overseas province. But, you know, it's a variegated picture again, you know, because most in most cases, the, it's modernizing rulers who took over in most Arab states, in Iran, the Pahlavis, and in Pakistan, right after its uh, independence. Um, uh, Turkey, Ottoman Empire, was never colonized. Uh, out of it came Turkey. Same thing, it's a modernizing ruler, Ataturk. And most of these rulers, and, and quite a few of them were military rulers uh, quite uh, uh, quickly, you know, Nasser in Egypt, for example, uh, they, they tended to be indifferent regarding uh, uh, alcohol, part of their modernist uh, outlook on life with some sensitivity built into the religious sensibilities attached to alcohol, to be sure. So not simply, you know, no rules and no restrictions, you know, no alcohol during Ramadan, you know, all the wine shops and the taverns have to close, things of that nature, uh, and certain, you know, closing hours uh, and, and certain restrictions for Muslims. But again, it depends uh, on, on, the, on the region and on the type of ruler. French North Africa is an interesting one because with the departure of the French, who, uh, of course, also tend to be the specialists in viticulture, that same viticulture declines. Uh, and there is sort of this surge of, you know, proud nationalism, and it comes with the uprooting of vineyards all over the place, later to be replanted in part because the Algerians came to realize that wine was, um, even though pe most people didn't drink, was an, a potentially great export product. And the same, same in Morocco. Um, so, and then of course we have the whole uh, Islamist impulse, which starts, it doesn't start with the Iranian revolution, but it gets a great boost with the Iranian revolution, 1978, 79, the emergence of hardline forces. Uh, and then that spreads, of course, examples being Pakistan, uh, with Zia ul Haq in the 1970s, Yemen with the fall of South Yemen, Marxist, completely free in terms of alcohol. Algeria, where, you know, hardline forces come in in the 1990s, there's a terrible civil war, it has an effect on the, the, the freedom with which alcohol can be cultivated and consumed. Uh, so it's, a, it's, a, it's, again, it's a complex picture, there's not one particular answer to that question. And, and it's, again, the contrast with Sub-Saharan Africa is, again, 
uh, uh, quite telling here because there we have we have a series of countries that were literally and 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 clearly colonized uh, by uh, European powers, the French and the British, for the most part, and then they become independent in say 1960. The Middle East is much more complex than that. You know, we have the mandate states, and they're not meant to be colonies, but they're meant to be countries that have to be guided towards full independence by these benevolent European powers. So it's an entirely different uh, constellation of forces, I would argue. But, you know, I mean, to, to not to shift the, the, the type of answer, but stay within the whole parameters of colonization and decolonization, I, could argue, I would argue that in some ways, and I end my book that way, the Islamic world has yet to break out of its own self-imposed colonization by acknowledging its for, former relative tolerance and even toleration of drinking as part of its layered identity, you know, which includes pre-Islamic, Greek, and Mediterranean past, and Persian, and Turkic elements. So that brings us right up to, to the present day. Um, and, uh, and, and, and before I get into my question, I want to kind of tell a couple, a couple personal anecdotes. Um, so, uh, so, so my father, who was doing a lot of business in, in Central Asia and the former Soviet Union, he, he would tell me how he would try to be very sensitive about the discussion of alcohol. Certainly he was in the Middle East and then he went to Central Asia and tried to be sensitive there to the complete just befuddlement of his of his post-Soviet Kazakh uh, contemporaries who thought he was mad that he wouldn't suggest drinking vodka. And then for me, I mean, I've been to Dubai. I've been to um, I've gone to restaurants where they usher me to the to the foreigner floor where they serve alcohol. Um, but when it comes to alcohol in the in the present day, um, there does seem to be this more conservative turn in some Islamic countries. Uh, I think especially as, you know, frankly, they become more democratic. Um, they bring in a lot more voters who are more conservative, more traditional. There is this more conservative turn towards alcohol or against alcohol. But also you have lots of cosmopolitan cities like Dubai, um, where uh, in some ways, by the very nature of being a global cosmopolitan city, you have to tolerate alcohol to some extent. Um, how does globalization now, well, I guess globalization, democratization, how does this all change the way the Islamic world thinks about alcohol? All right. Again, I think we're faced with a very complex reality, too, uh, in, in this regard. And, you know, there's a, somewhat of a bifurcation, I think, uh, because on the one hand, of course, there is there are the, the myriad expressions and manifestations of what we call Islamic fundamentalism, right, uh, with its black and white perspective. Uh, and its attempt to rein uh, alcohol consumption in, completely ban it. Uh, then, of course, you have, again, you have to differentiate between rulers and ruled. You know, in Iran, Iran again, being the best example, all the country I, I know best because I go to Iran. And it's remarkable. You know, I mean, you just you call up your, your guy, you're your, uh, on the scooter, and you can order anything. Um, Within half an hour, it's being delivered uh, in on the black in a, uh, in a black box on the on the back of the scooter. You know whether it's pornography or any type of alcohol or contraband, it doesn't really matter, and everyone knows about it. But it's kind of you know uh, don't ask, don't tell. And when you enter a middle class home, there's almost invariably a bottle of vodka sitting on the coffee table ready for you. Um, so you know far cry from the 
official stance by the authorities. So that's one thing. Uh, and so, um, of course, in many cases, following the same um, uh, stance, there are attempts to keep drinking out of the public eye. Uh, there are attempts to tax it out of existence. The best example is, of course, Turkey under Erdogan. You know, you make it unaffordable for people to buy. Uh, but then on the other hand, you know, and this is where the bifurcation comes in, there's also acceptance as part of a, call it an ineluctable bargain. You know, there's no modern tourism without alcohol. And that's where a place like Dubai uh, comes in. You know, at a price, of course, because you pay a hefty amount of money for a glass of wine in these expensive, mostly expatriate-built uh, hotels, as I'm sure you've experienced. Um so, you know, if you want to be a modern sort of events destination, then, uh, you know, it's hard to keep alcohol out, as we saw with the Qatar soccer games uh, six, seven months ago. Even Saudi Arabia now is trying to become an events destination and may loosen the rules. They're talking about it. Who knows? Under MBS. Um, so, you know, you could say that in countries where drinking is legally forbidden, there's lots of subterfuge on the part of consumers home brewing, smuggling, bootlegging, sometimes with lethal results, you know, methanol, alcohol, and so forth. Uh, in countries where uh, there are, of course, countries like Syria, or what's left of it under the Bashar al-Assad regime, where drinking, according, you know, following the traditional bath uh, uh, approach is completely free. There are virtually no restrictions. Same with Saddam Hussein, as long as he was in power in Iraq. Uh, there was there were no restrictions um imposed on drinking or under the Shah, some restrictions, but very few. Um, I think by way of conclusion and sort of, you know, overarching argument, you could say that there is today a much greater tension vis-a-vis -vis alcohol in the Islamic world than in the traditional Islamic world, which was after all marked by a much more live and let live attitude where drinking was effectively countenanced and connived at so long as it didn't disturb the social order. There's still some some of that, but the stakes are much higher and, and the debate is global and, and things have to be much more explicit. You know, there was all this implicitness and this sort of hidden ambiguity, which never had to come out because it was all understood, if you will. And today everything has to be ex explicated. And I think that's the main difference in the Islamic world between the modern world and the traditional Islamic world. Right, right. As you say, there are explicitly, I said, there's explicitly the foreigner floor where alcohol is served. There's explicitly the yes. the hotels yes, where it's okay. Yeah, and that was always the case, but but things were much more fuzzy and diffuse in the past. And that's just that's not just true for this particular topic, but it is especially true and poignant for this topic, I think, because you know, I argue in the book that alcohol, in a in a funny roundabout way, is present through its very absence, and in that way also brings us to the heart of Islam in a paradoxical way. And I hope I've worked that out uh, in a convincing way for the reader in the book. That thesis. Well, I think that's a that's a great place to end our conversation with Rudy Mate, author of Angels Tapping at the Wine Shop's Door: History of Alcohol in the Islamic World. Rudy, I actually have two final questions for you, which are, uh, where can people find your work, including this book? And also, what's next for you? What do you think the next project might be? Um, 
Well, the first question is easily answered because, uh, well, first of all, you can read an excerpt, meaning the introduction of the book, on my uh, academia.edu page, which you'll find under my last name, um, and, and all my other uh, material, except for books, of course, because you still have to deal with copyright there, is also available there. The book is uh, was put out by Hearst in England and Oxford University Press in this country. It's nicely priced hardback with 28 color pictures for something like 30 euros or $35. Um, and so it's accessible in that sense. Uh, the second question was, uh, what's next? Well, I expect to, uh, a little afterlife of the book, you know, to be asked to write an article here and there about certain aspects. I certainly uh, am, uh, I, I intend to go into the archives to find out about the remarkable phenomenon, very interesting one, that the favorite uh, drink of um, military dictators in uh, the Arab world in the post-war period uh, seems to have been uh, Johnny Walker Black Label. And I'm intrigued by that. And I think there's material for an article there. I'm also interested in the um, Crimean War, which is under research. It was really the first time foreign troops were to be found in Istanbul. Uh, and I'm going to look into the archives to see if I can find some interesting material for an article, but it also coincides with these capitulations, you know, these far-reaching concessions uh, that the um, the uh, the British gained in the Ottoman Empire and, and beyond at the time. Uh, so that is for the uh, the immediate future when it comes to alcohol. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find many more author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. This podcast is on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends if you want to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for an interview with Vaudine England, author of Fortune's Bazaar, The Making of Hong Kong. But before then, Rudy, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you, Nicholas, for inviting me. It was a great pleasure.